You're listening to the ASN Kidney News Podcast. Eric Dishman does healthcare research for Intel, studying technical and societal solutions for problems in care for the aging. He is also a kidney patient. He founded the product research and innovation team responsible for driving Intel's worldwide healthcare research, new product innovation, strategic planning, and health policy and standards activities. Dishman is also recognized globally for driving healthcare reform through home and community-based technologies and services with a focus on enabling independent living for seniors. His work has been featured in the New York Times, Washington Post, and Business Week, and the Wall Street Journal named him one of the 12 people who are changing your retirement. In part two, Mr. Dishman discusses healthcare reform and technology, including the coming age wave, rationing and redistribution of care, the incentive imagination problem, and creating an environment for innovation. From your perspective, why do you think the United States has not paid more attention to the, the age wave, the demographic imperative, the fact that so much of the population is aging and it's going to have a dramatic effect on the healthcare system? You know, I struggle with this question all the time, and I'm certainly frustrated by it. I mean, I first testified before Congress, oh, 12 years ago, and at that point, I not so jokingly referred to the aging challenge in the U.S. as the Y2K plus 10 problem. So we, we all knew in the year 2000 we had the Y2K challenge, and we were all worried about our aging computers and whether or not they were going to make it from 1999 to 2000. And so what did the government do? We called upon industry and academics and, and government to some come together and, and deal with that problem. So much so that a lot of people think it was a scam and that it wouldn't have been a problem. And I mean, we, we were so effective at sort of dealing with the, the conversion of those computers to the new, new millennium that it ended up not being much of a problem. And so at that point, I said, look, you know, we have a Y2K plus 10 problem. And 2010 is when the first baby boomer is going to reach retirement age. We've got 10 years to start trying to reinvent long-term care and reinvent the way that we care for these people who are the most expensive to care for. And it sort of fell on deaf ears. And, and now you fast forward to 2010, 2011, when literally the first baby boomers were reaching age 65. And now you're starting to see the drum roll and the, and the drum beat by Congress saying, just because of the sheer threat of Medicare insolvency and, and the sheer cost bubble, you know, now you're seeing people start to respond to it. And of course, we're going to do it now in a kind of fit of desperation and urgency and not in a strategic way that we could have done 10 years ago. So I think the reason that we haven't done this is a couple. I think, I think there is an inherent age bias in our culture that just makes it so that we don't want to think about the age and age-related conditions that are coming. And we also have a kind of stereotypic notion of aging that says we're all going to be old and frail and, and, and we're in sort of in denial about those kinds of things, when the reality of it is we see a lot of people in their 70s and 80s and even more who are living very vibrant lifestyle. So it's in some ways our sort of notion of old age is 30 to 50 years out of date and our notions of long-term care and fears of nursing homes and all of that are, are 20 to 30 years out of date with actually what's really happening. But we still have this sort of stigma and sort of aging bias. And I think governments respond better to threat than they do opportunity. Ten years ago, we had an opportunity to kind of build out a national infrastructure for aging in place and we didn't respond to that opportunity, now we'll start to respond to it as a threat. And, and it'll be more expensive and more painful now, but we'll probably do it because now the, the economic threat is so real. I agree with your observations. I guess another one that I would make is that 
no one wants to have the difficult discussion about how we currently ration care based on ability to pay. You can imagine a scenario in the future where we will be forced to ration care based on other metrics, and, and that's going to be a really difficult discussion. And I'm just wondering if that has entered into your thinking and into some of the work that you're doing. It has, and I think our biggest challenge, particularly in the U.S., but even this is true in other places that ostensibly have socialized medicine, but if you look closely at what's really happening, a lot of the reward system for care is still premised upon a fee-for-service paradigm and is still premised upon a a face-to-face office visit as the primary transaction of care. And I think the health reform bill, not only in the U.S., but in in the U.K., in Germany, in France, and even China, who who we're working with with the Minister of Health in China, if you sort of factor up above all of these different lingo and acronyms and and sort of local idioms that people are sort of using to describe their healthcare reform, kind of above all that are some common trends. And one of those is clearly this move from a volume-driven healthcare paradigm to a value-driven paradigm. And and in that world, we'll finally start to question the premise that all care needs to occur in in a clinical environment. And we'll start to take seriously the notion that we're going to distribute care to occur at home, at work, at play, and, and, and then when needed in a clinic or in a hospital. We have so optimized and built national infrastructures that are so concerned about filling beds that we fill beds even when that's the, not the best way to actually deliver quality of care or the most cost-effective way to deliver quality of care. So, you know, my hope for healthcare reform in the U.S. and elsewhere, and you said we'll talk some about accountable care organizations, is that we're going to at least question the, this 150-year-old tradition that says care needs to occur in some institutional place, and we're going to question this sort of financial legacy that we've got that says we're going to pay for care based on the volume of prescriptions and labs and, and visits that are done, and, and which, which at the end of the day, no one's actually really happy with. It's just the sort of economic exchange system we found ourselves saddled with, but it doesn't have to be that way. I personally love the terminology mainframe healthcare, which is where you've taken this discussion. Can you, for our audience, just quickly sort of summarize that concept? Sure. I, full disclosure, I borrowed the term from Andy Grove, uh, the sort of co-founder of Intel, um, he doesn't even remember he used the term. It's very funny. He, he used it about 15 years ago in an, in an article with Fortune magazine, and I sort of took it and ran with it. And uh, he recently wrote to me and said, that's a great metaphor. And I said, it was yours. I didn't come up with it. But I have Well, T.S. Eliot once said that good poets borrow and great poets steal. So There you go. There you go. So, you know, the basic model is if you think about mainframe computers that not that many decades ago, we traveled to – large urban centers that housed these mainframe computers that literally took up several floors of the building, and we timeshared those. And you had a systems operator there who uh, would, you know, help you with your punch card to get access to that mainframe computer, and you would have your 30 minutes to run your calculations, and then you would leave. It was inconceivable to even Intel 20 and 30 years ago that we would have the power of those mainframe computers times a 1,000 sitting on our belts, on our cell phones, or in our purses and our cell phones today. I mean, we just couldn't conceptualize that what took a building and was vastly expensive 
would become a personal, almost sort of throwaway tool that, that's a part of our, of, our, of our everyday lives. And you can certainly see what the shift from mainframe to personal computing has done for almost every industry, right? I mean, we've radically changed our relationship to money management and, and financial services and how we do retail and business and all of that with the growth of the Internet and with the growth of personal computing that moved it out of the office and institution and into our everyday lives. If you think about the metaphor and apply that to healthcare, it was in the 1800s when we invented the notion of a hospital and we put a lot of high tech into that urban, often urban hospital and we put a lot of experts there, medically trained experts, and we wait until you're sick and then sort of, you know, send you on a pilgrimage to that mainframe healthcare system to put you back together again, often with heroic measures and unbelievably uh, huge expense. And I'm not anti-hospital. There's a place in the world for hospitals and there's a place in the world for nursing homes and there's a place in the world for sort of a clinic visit. But we've so naturalized that mainframe mentality that we, we, we've really missed the opportunity to actually return healthcare to the home and sort of realize both the physical place of the home through these new technologies and new care models can be a real node, a real key place in which care can occur, but also sort of metaphorically, it means the people who live in that home, the family members and the patients themselves, have to have tools and responsibility for their own care. They can't just worship at the the altar of the high priests of healthcare to put everyone back together again. It's just not sustainable, and and it's not a high quality of life anyway. So, you know, it's really that same metaphor that says over the next 10 years or so, the call to action that I have is how do we move 50% of care that's done in hospitals and clinics and institutions today into the home and community within within 10 years? I, I personally think it's the only way that we'll deal with the demographic and capacity crisis that we've got. I think it's the only way that we'll deal with the, the health care cost problem that we have. And the reality of it is for cancer patients on chemotherapy, for dialysis patients, there's increasingly it's going to be safer, cheaper, better, and higher quality care for them to be treated in their own home environment than it is for them to travel somewhere. What types of things do you think need to happen to begin this process for it to shift from, from the mainframe analogy into more of a, a handheld world? It's partly an incentive problem and it's partly an imagination problem. So I certainly think if all of the economic incentives make it so that FaceTime pays the bills, right? That's the phrase that a lot of physicians would give to us as we would go do our research. They would say, you know, look, I, I love the idea of doing remote patient monitoring with my patients. I love the idea of being able to video conference them with them when appropriate because there's lots of cases where I could appropriately do that. But the problem is FaceTime pays the bills. If if our incentive infrastructure only allows for a face-to-face visit, then guess what? That's all that we're going to do. We're not going to allow all these other sort of innovations to occur, and we're not going to discover how to do mixed-mode care. That is, we're not going to discover best practices for how to do some virtual visits, some in-clinic visits, and some in-home visits and figure out you know, what's the right balance of those that we need to do for a particular patient's need. So aligning the incentives is certainly one, but it's also an imagination problem. So just like even Intel engineers 20 years ago couldn't imagine that compute power would be cheap enough and powerful enough to sit on your hip or in your purse, there's a lot of patients and families and clinics that don't understand that a lot of the things that are put into that medical mainframe today, imaging technologies and so forth, could 
and increasingly are available as form factors that can go into the home, right? And, and I'll give you, you know, some simple examples of that, right? Five or six years ago, one of the top most sought-after consumer electronic devices in the United States for one of these consumer report studies was a home defibrillator. I mean, who would have thought that we would actually consumerize a medical, de- you know, technology like a home defibrillator and, and, and that became cheap enough and usable enough to be, you know, not something that just has to sit into a hospital, but that could go into a mall and, or, or actually could even be moved to the home. So we're already seeing the consumerization of some medical technologies, and we're also seeing the medicalization of some consumer technologies. Certainly the cell phones that we're carrying around with us are starting to be used for health coaching, prompting, reminding, whether it's taking your meds. We've done some work that even does some cognitive behavioral therapy exercises for patients that are stressed because there's no way they can get in to see a cognitive behavioral therapist and every moment that they need one, and the system would actually sort of walk them through a series of, of therapeutic interventions right there on the cell phone. In Asia, diabetic glucose monitoring equipment is actually already built into the cell phone, and that data goes to your PHR, your personal health record at home, and goes to your clinician. And if you're, you know, in a diabetic coma and the system senses it, it's going to call 911 and use the GPS and the cell phone to try to get somebody to care for you. Those things are on the market in other parts of the world, but not here in the U.S. yet. So those trends of consumerizing medicalized technologies that were traditionally too expensive or too large or required so much clinical intervention that they could only exist in a hospital are increasingly being moved to the home. And then the, you know, consumer technologies that we're carrying with us for our entertainment or our financial services become a platform at which we can start doing health and wellness in some pretty new ways as well. But we don't have an imagination for that. We are kind of held into the gravity that a, a doctor-patient interaction is a face-to-face visit for 15 minutes with a paper chart, and that's just the way of the world. And it's really just a showing in our own work with, with our product, the Intel Health Guide, there's just a lot of clinicians that never even imagined how they might interact with their patients differently through secure messaging, through video visits, through having a, a care plan that you can use to remind and prompt them and how different it is to actually get 24 by 7 information about your patients and seeing their actual trend lines of change of their weight or their blood pressure as opposed to kind of the glimpses that we get now. There's some resistance to those models from the clinicians when they don't understand them and haven't seen them. But then once they've seen them, most of them will say to us, oh, my God, I can't go back to doing care the old way. This is not just a digitalized version of doing a face-to-face visit. This is a different way of doing care that I can't do in an analog face-to-face way. But getting people to understand that is a big challenge. So it's really both an incentive problem and an imagination problem. Yeah, and I guess I would argue that the incentive problem is a left brain issue, and we're good at solving left brain challenges. But the imagination problem is really right-brained, and we struggle with that. And so how do we pull together the right people, or how do we create an environment where people's imagination in healthcare is running at the same rate as it is in other parts of our economy. In healthcare, we, the pace of innovation is certainly slower than other sectors of the economy, and it, and it is partly this imagination problem. And, you know, not to mention, we come up with an elaborate set of reasons not to change in healthcare. You know, we, we say, this is life and death, we can't change. We say, this is regulated, we can't change. We say, 
The licensure requires it be this way. We can't change. And I think we will give ourselves an enormous number of excuses in healthcare not to change things because change is frightening, right? But the reality of it is we're at an unsustainable situation where it's pretty clear we're going to have to change. And the, the reality of it, I mean, I described this, you know, all along this work that we've done to study these thousand families over the last 10 or 12 years, we've studied another thousand plus medical providers, healthcare providers. And what I often just describe the state of being of these, of these medical providers is they're at a state of frustration. They're at a frustration flashpoint, I often call it. It's so bad that 12 years ago in the surveys that we did with doctors and nurses, about 80 to 90 percent of the respondents would say, yes, I want my own children if I had children to go into medicine. Now we're lucky to get 30 percent of respondents in those surveys to sort of tell us that they want their children to go in medicine in just a 10 to 12-year time frame. That if that's not an indicator that there's a real problem here, that, that doctors and nurses aren't happy with the system either, and don't feel like they. this is why they went to medical school and this, they're not giving care in the way that they feel is right in their hearts, not just their brains, there's something wrong on that end. The patients aren't happy with it, but neither are the professionals. In my experience, we use social science methods and what we call ethnography or sort of anthropological field work, and we expose the lives of the patients to the clinical team, we expose the lives of the clinical team to the patients, we expose both of them to the technological possibilities that are already here, and then show them the kinds of things that are possible in the future. And then once you let each of those stakeholders walk a mile in the shoes of one of the others, and once you've planted the seeds with them about what's both possible now technologically but what's possible in the future, they come up with real clear value propositions and priorities and needs. And, and that's why we do the social science work, right? I mean, we, we do it with all the stakeholders, but then we get those stakeholders to see the data about, how, you know, how does the other part, how does the back office and the clinic deal with the day-to-day business? How does the physician and nurse deal with it? How does the patient deal with it? How does the family manage? And, and sort of bring all those perspectives together. And it's often really shocking for them. If I go back to that original study I described to you, we were – we asked physicians and nurses, how many instructions do you think you give to a patient in an encounter? And they would say, oh, I think two or three. And they would be shocked when we would come back and show them, did you realize that you gave them kind of 12 instructions? And they'd be like, no, I had no idea. Half the time we're not, we're so embedded in our own everyday behaviors that we're not aware of the things and the patterns that we do, whether for good or for bad. So the social science work ends up being this disruptive way of helping all the, the stakeholders in the healthcare system to sort of realize what they do now and that it doesn't have to be that way. And then to enlist them in designing the future workflow model and sort of social covenant that we have with one another for where we're going next. This podcast is copyrighted by the American Society of Nephrology. All rights reserved. All content in this podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be medical advice. The information in this podcast should not be used during a medical emergency or for the diagnosis or treatment of any medical condition. Please consult your doctor or other qualified health care provider if you have any questions about any medical condition or before taking any drug, changing your diet, or commencing or discontinuing any course of treatment. Thank you for listening to this podcast of the American Society of Nephrology.